0: Good morning, saints. Ah, well, before we begin, I just have one short little announcement. Woo! Next Sunday, Cinnamon Roll Sunday. You won't find it on the calendar, but it is. And uh, this is a fundraiser for our women's ministry, and it's going to begin a little early, so if you want to come early and enjoy some cinnamon rolls, it's going to start at 8.30 a.m. right there in the lobby. They'll have coffee as well, I'm sure. They'll also be available afterward, but they're going to come in little tins, large tins, of four cinnamon rolls, okay? And this is a fundraiser, but it is going to be by voluntary donation, so you can do cash, check, or credit card. Um, but it's going to be home-baked cinnamon rolls, so are we excited? <laughs> Good. All right. We can go back to our homepage slide here. There we go. The death of King Me. I've got a question for you all this morning. How many of you have ever been in a quarrel? Coral kind of looks something like this. I thought this was kind of creepy, but appropriate. <laughs> ever fought over who gets the cinnamon roll? <laughs> Maybe next week. Have you ever had an issue with a boss or a coworker? You know, or a fight with your spouse, a roommate or a neighbor? Have you ever gotten into a heated debate over some Bible doctrine? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever felt animosity toward another driver? Ooh, I'm hitting some buttons here now. How about an exchange of words with another parent over your kid's sporting event? Ouch. Now, some people really enjoy a good fight. You know, they they thrive on conflict and drama. I'm not one of them. I grew up in a home where there was always plenty of conflict, so as an adult, I just avoid it like the plague. I hate confrontation, high emotions, and relational discord, but internally, it's still there. Internally, there's always ample opportunities for offense, right? Internally, there's always things going on with my ego, my desires, my will. And all those things cannot help but come out in my words and my actions. In fact, I have a whole arsenal of tools at my disposal for one purpose and one purpose only. You know what it is? That is to get my way. (laughs) We can do things my way, my way, or my way. Pick one. Maybe you can relate. Have you ever said this? my way or the highway? You know, back when I was in college, um, we would often do these, uh, uh, ski trips to Colorado. And my very first one, I think it was, um, we, we were going to go to Colorado and this was a 14 hour trip on a freezing cold school bus. Okay. This was, this was roughing it. And, uh, I remember as they were loading the bus, people were starting to get on. A friend of mine nudged me and said, come on, quick, let's get on so we can get one of the prime seats and avoid the uncomfortable seats over the wheel wells. My friend kind of reminded me of this guy. It's true. Nobody wants the seats over the wheel wells, including me. But you know, his desire struck me as kind of odd because even as a new Christian, I knew that as believers, we're supposed to be selfless and sacrificial and servant-minded. Well, guess who ended up taking that last seat over the wheel well? It was our pastor. But not only that, he was the one person who had the longest legs on the entire bus. And needless to say, well, I was happy to be relatively comfortable for the 14 hour trip, but I felt guilty the entire way. And as I look back over my Christian life, I can recount scores of instances where I was selfish and self-serving and self-seeking. I can also remember times when I was sacrificial putting others' interests and desires and comfort above my own. I don't know about you, but for me, that choice never seems to get any easier. Because whether it's big or small, a death still has to occur. And it's the death of this person right here, King Me. King Me, this struggle it was real in the first century, and just like it's real today. We just received a newsletter from a, a missionary that we support in, uh, near India. And uh, it was very interesting, because it describes one of the struggles that they are dealing with there currently. And our friend, he asked a fellow missionary in another part uh, of the work there who is opposing the church planting efforts the most? Is it the Hindus or is it the Muslims? And he responded by saying, neither. It's the Christians and Christian pastors who are bound by their traditions and their lust for power. For example, he said some pastors there don't allow their church members to lead a person to Christ unless they first call the pastor and let him do it in a more formal way. And in Nepal, most pastors there forbid their church members from baptizing anyone. Only the head honcho pastor from Kathmandu is sanctioned to baptize new believers. And so these traditions of men have been invented to give clergymen far more power over their congregants than the scriptures prescribe. Last week, Aaron addressed the the jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance that some first century churches were dealing with. And this morning, James continues this same theme by addressing the source of all the conflict that this pride was producing in those churches. And then he's going to offer God's solution. Like a good physician, James has examined all the symptoms. Now he's going to diagnose the disease. And then he's going to write a prescription. All right? We're going to begin with just the first three verses of James chapter 4. But first, let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to just reveal and uncover these roots that we're gonna talk about in our own hearts. Lord, we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts this morning. Remove the hardness. Remove the dullness. Remove all callousness and complacency and especially, Lord, any cynicism. Make us like little children who are irresistibly drawn to you and to your love for us. You are the great physician and the great surgeon and we want to open our hearts to you and to your skillful hands this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right, let's stop there. So at first glance, you know, you might have been a little surprised that James would be addressing something as serious as murder here among believers in these first century churches. But You know, even in the the messed up church of Corinth, you didn't even have this kind of problem. So most likely, James was speaking metaphorically in response to all the harsh words and criticism and slander being tolerated in these churches. I think it's doubtful that James would, you know, mention something as serious as literal murder and then just move on so quickly to other topics. So... It seems to me that James is more concerned with the manner in which believers were fighting than the things they were even fighting about. In verse 1, James says that there is a war going on within them. And I think it's the same war that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. If you're familiar with that, it was the war that every Christian experiences All of us deal with with this on a daily basis, and it's between our flesh, or that part of us that is still unredeemed, and the Spirit, the Spirit of God. So he says that it's our passions or pleasures that are at war within us. Of course, not all pleasure is bad. That would be asceticism, which is not biblical. But the word passions here, it's the same Greek word from which we get the term hedonism. You familiar with that? Hedonism. Hedonism is not the pursuit of wholesome, godly, biblically ordained pleasures. It's the pursuit of sinful, self-indulgent kinds of pleasure. Now, in the physical body, that could manifest itself as gluttony or laziness or lust. In our hearts, that could manifest as boasting or coveting, envy, rivalry, malice, deceit. Peter issues a very similar warning in 1 Peter 2.11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. As Christians, I think it can be very easy for us to kind of downgrade that word war, and just say, oh yeah, I struggle now and then, you know, it's just a struggle. The Bible calls it a war. Also as Christians, you know, I think it can be easy and even tempting for us to focus on all the enemies that are external to us, such as the world, the devil, politicians, (laughs) people, anyone working against God. But Jesus taught his disciples to first look within. Matthew 15, 18, and 19. He said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Or as Ralph Waldo Emerson once noted, he said this, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters, compared to what lies within us. Within us. What is it that lies within us? I think it can be summarized in just two words. Know what they are? (laughs) I want. I want. You can say it in the voice of Gollum, you know. I want it. (laughs) I want it. If you've had a child or if you've even been around children at all, you know just how much they can appear to suffer. They suffer as a result of wanting things. Even the Buddhist religion is based on the idea that all human suffering is a result of what? Our desires. And so for them, the only way to eliminate suffering is to eliminate desire. That can't be that hard, right? But does that really work? I don't know does make me want to ask this question. What do you do when you have freed yourself of all desire except the desire to be free from desire? There's kind of some logic there. Of course, Jesus and the authors of the New Testament did not teach that. They did teach that we need to put to death our evil desires, but then to wholeheartedly pursue good desires. Pursue them. That's why James talks about our motives. Pursuing the right things for the wrong reasons is still very bad. For example, in the book of Exodus and Numbers, they didn't have cameras back then, but just think about this. Just three days after, you know, God delivered these Israelites by splitting the Red Sea, what were they doing? They were complaining about the lack of food and water. Now, food and water are not luxuries, right? (laughs) They're, They're necessities. So, desiring food and water was not a bad thing. It was not an extravagant desire. But it's how they went about expressing that desire that was so bad, so bad. Instead of humbly praying and asking God to provide, they grumbled. And they complained. Their motives were bad because they were self-centered and entitled. And they were ungrateful. All they cared about was relieving their immediate physical hunger and thirst. And they blamed God. And they accused him of delivering them from slavery only to make them starve in the wilderness. So... That's not the kind of people that God is inclined to bless. You can read about this incident in a lot more detail in Psalm 78. God ended up giving them what they wanted. He provided water and then he caused these massive quantities of quail to fly over the camp and and fall and rain down from the sky enough to satisfy their appetites for an entire month until it says it was just literally coming out their nostrils, so much to eat. The people just started greedily eating them without any thought of thanksgiving to God. And so while the meat was still between their teeth, it says God struck them with a plague, a severe plague. Let me ask you this. Have you Ever had a strong desire for something, could be anything, and you found yourself discontent and maybe even grumbling and complaining about it, but you never got around to humbly asking and taking that desire before the throne of God in prayer. Now that has been a description of me more than I care to admit many times in my Christian life. Or maybe you have a desire and you start working really hard to see that desire fulfilled. You know, your mentality is best described by the longest sentence in the English language made up of two-letter words. You know what it is? If it is to be, it is up to me. Brothers and sisters, self-reliance May be a virtue in our culture, but it is an abomination to our God. Pretty much every bad thing that ever happened in the Bible was due to self reliance and a failure to humbly seek God and His will. All right, so the next set of verses, starting with verse 4, mark the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance in the entire New Testament. Read it with me, James 4, 4 and 5. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So let this sink in. James is addressing Christians when he says, you adulterous people. Now we all know what adultery is. But since the word in the Greek here, the word adulteress, is in the feminine form, James is not talking about literal physical marital infidelity. The context goes on to make it clear that he's talking about spiritual infidelity toward God, who throughout the Bible describes himself as a husband to his people. Spiritual adultery is seeking satisfaction meaning, safety, life from any source other than God. Nothing can inflict more pain than adultery. And it's the same in the spiritual realm. We can deeply hurt the heart of God. If we simplify what this passage is saying, we can deduce the following. Being led, driven, and ruled by one's passions equals Spiritual adultery equals friendship with the world, equals enmity or hostility toward God, equals making God jealous, equals making yourself God's enemy. Now, when the Bible talks about friendship with the world, it's not talking about someone who cares about the environment or is concerned about global warming, all right? It's talking about someone who has bought in to this world system in such a way that he or she has adopted the mindset and priorities and values of this world. Now, before you decide that this doesn't apply to you, one litmus test might be this. How well do you want to be viewed or thought of by this world and the people in it? If you're highly motivated to be thought and spoken well of, that might seem admirable, but you are setting yourself up on a collision course that is incompatible with following God. It just is. 1 John 15:19, familiar verse. Says if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God is saying with crystal clarity here that by our very nature, we cannot straddle the fence between our new identity in Christ and this world system. In fact, you know, if our lives do not result in the world's disapproval and, and even hatred of us, at least in some form or fashion, that something's probably wrong. Something's wrong. Now, this word friendship here in James 4.4, 4, it is the only time that this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. And what it means is a strong emotional attachment. It's strong. And a strong emotional attachment to the world is probably the key cause of what James is describing in chapter one and also again in this chapter when he's talking about being double minded. Double minded. It's a dual allegiance. And those with a deep and intimate longing for the things of this world are actually giving evidence that they may very well not be redeemed. You don't even have to be overtly worldly in practice to be in trouble here. Verse four says that you only have to wish to be a friend of the world. You just have to desire it in order to make yourself an enemy of God. Yikes. Now, it wasn't like these Christians were, you know publicly renouncing their allegiance to God and then consciously deciding to follow the world instead. It wasn't that blatant, but their tendency to imitate the world was evidenced by these things, by, dis- by discriminating against people, which we read about in chapter two, by negative- speaking negatively of others, chapter three bitter envy and selfish ambition in chapter 3, and the pursuit of their own destructive pleasures, which we just read. These things are not just worldly sins. They are evidences of an allegiance to the world. Okay? And the seriousness of these things is seen many places throughout the Bible. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is just one. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Another one is First 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What are these, these passions that we still deal with on a regular basis, they are rooted in our former ignorance. The Bible says that passion or sinful desire is the root cause of every form of corruption that we see in the world. You know, whether it's using an army to take over another country that you want for yourself, or using a computer to download explicit images that you want for yourself. 2 Peter one four, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from what? The corruption that is in the world Because of sinful desires. Do you see what's being contrasted here? It's contrasting faith in the promises of God with faith in the promises of sin. It's the choice between looking to God for satisfaction versus looking to self. We can't have both. So God often brings his people to a forced point of decision. We read about that in Joshua 24, 15. It's just one example. They're conquering the promised land and um, they're being tempted to uh, be seduced by the false gods of the people that they're conquering. And Joshua writes, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites who, whose land you do, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why choose this day? Why this day? Why, what's the sense of urgency? Well, we get a clue in James 4, 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell where? In us, in me, in each and every one of us. This verse has proven to be extremely difficult, by the way, for Bible scholars to translate and interpret, but I think the context points to the idea that God is jealous whenever we have a divided allegiance. It makes sense. We see this throughout scripture, especially where God is relating to his people as a husband to his bride. One example is Ezekiel 6.9. It's almost hard to read this. Ezekiel says, Then those of you who escape will remember me, God says. Among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt. By their adulterous hearts. Which turned away from me. And by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves. In their own sight. For the evils which they have committed. For all their abominations. The apostle Paul deeply felt this same exact jealousy that God felt when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11:2 for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband not 10 so that Christ to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin that was Paul's heart and desire It's God's heart and desire. Infidelity is devastating to any who have gone through it. Did you know that statistically, there's a lot of varying statistics, but they're all in this range. Statistically, a whopping one in five marriages will encounter the sin of physical adultery. God knows that feeling. He felt it for thousands of years with the nation Israel as they pursued other gods. Jesus felt it when he watched Peter publicly deny him three times. And he feels it every time you or I prefer to please ourselves instead of him. In verses 6 to 10, God prescribes a solution as to how we can escape from being ruled by our passions and desires. And the solution starts with humility. Because through humility, God gives grace. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God, is, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's lots of great definitions of humility out there. One I particularly like is by a guy named Andrew Murray. He said this, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Now conversely, on the other side of the equation, as Thomas Boston has said, pride is the very image of the devil. Wow. When you think of it in those terms, it takes on a whole new quality and character and weight. You know, we think of pride is just one of many other sins, but wow, it's, it's the devil's very image. Our final verses give us some uh, practical examples of how to express humility, what it looks like. And In James 4, 7 to 10, let's read that. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So let's just summarize this. One, submit to God. That just means agree with his will. Two, resist the devil. That includes renouncing and forsaking sin. Three, draw near to God. That's seeking in him and praying to him. Cleanse your hands. That infers a change of our actual behavior. Purify your hearts. That would include changing our motives, as we talked about. Six, be miserable and mourn. You know, sin should cause us to be remorseful. And there's a sense of desperation here. And seven, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. That means in relationship to him. You can humble yourselves, but not really before him or in relationship to him. That's not what it's getting at. So this this is not part of some kind of, you know, self-improvement program. No. This is a coming to the end of ourselves. Period. As J.I. Packer has said, the index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is what? It is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. So true. Verse nine says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sometimes I think we gloss over sin so easily and so quickly that we miss the gravity of it. But recall how, you know, when Peter denied the Lord, it says that he did what? He went out and he wept bitterly he wept bitterly. Ezekiel 36, 31 says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Similarly, the early church father Augustine wrote, If God did not spare the proud angels... Will he spare you who are but dust and rottenness? Oh, look upon your boils and ulcers and be humbled. But this is the part I love. Christians are never more lovely in God's eyes than when they are loathsome in their own. Those sins which humble shall never damn. This might sound like Christians are to be in a constant state of self-loathing. Not true. That's not healthy, right? God does want to bring us to that place, but he doesn't want us to stay there. Self-loathing and self-contempt are rampant in society today, even among Christians. And secular psychology's approach, by and large, to healthy self-esteem has done little to improve that. The best solution to our self-loathing and self-contempt is the cross of Jesus Christ. Just like the best solution to our sinful desires and conflicts and worldliness is the cross of Christ. Because it doesn't minimize my sins and failures, it magnifies them. And it doesn't deprive me of my sinful passions, it replaces them with godly ones. And it doesn't rehabilitate my my damaged ego, it kills it, it kills it. But then it raises me to new life in Christ where all my worth and dignity and value and acceptability and desirability are from Him. And only Him. Only Him. So many of our passions and sinful desires are a result of trying to find life apart from God, seeking our status and identity apart from Him. But it's empty. It is so empty. The prophet Jeremiah likens it to forsaking God, the fountain of living water, and then working hard to dig a well that ends up broken and can't hold any water anyway. When we pursue empty things, guess what? Jeremiah says we become empty. And God's solution in James 4, 7 to 10, is really what revival looks like. You know, we often think, of revival as multitudes of people outside the church coming to faith in Christ. But biblically and historically, revivals have always been about what's going on inside the church. Inside the church. Band, come on back up. Almost done here. I just want to end with one final thought. I recently watched the sermon that Sparked or initiated the recent revival at Asbury uh, College, Asbury University in Kentucky. You've probably heard about it. And the sermon was very short and very basic. It, It had no magic formula about it, okay? The speaker simply shared these basic things. One, what Christians should be doing or not doing. Two, how we are all unable to do those things in our own strength. Three, why we need Jesus and his Holy Spirit in order to change. And four, personal repentance. And what it looked like practically was largely what we just read in James. Ordinary people like you and me getting serious about sin and repentance and God. It's that simple. Could God do that here at some of you church, this week, this month, this year? Absolutely. And I pray, I pray that he would. But it doesn't start corporately or collectively. It starts when we as individuals humble ourselves before God afresh and receive his love and his forgiveness and his grace And that last verse gives us a promise that should ignite our hope and thrill our hearts. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you believe that? That word exalt, it literally means to lift up. It is to elevate, to raise, advance, upgrade, and ennoble us. So I'd like to close with a very short prayer it's from a book called Valley of Vision that I think is appropriate. I'd like us all just to stand and let's all pray these words out loud together. Would you do that? God, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Amen.